hopes and fears of all the years are met in Bethlehem. We began by singing, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, come to, to Bethlehem. We sung about a, a thrill of hope stirring up in people who have a sense of longing. The hopes and fears of all the years are found in a Bethlehem. A thrill is a sudden feeling of excitement. Hope is a sense of expectation. Hope has always been associated with Christmas as long as I can remember. I, I hope I get the Christmas present I asked for. Now it's more like I hope I took the price tag off the gift I, gift I just wrapped. I, I hope this church service isn't too long. Uh, I hope my parents don't take forever to stay in bed tomorrow morning. I hope the Raptors beat the Celtics tomorrow. I hope dad stays sober this year. I hope I can find a job. I hope the doctors find a cure. Hope is something that all of us have and all of us do. Hope is one of those words that's simultaneously a noun and a verb. Hope is something that you can have, but hope is something also that we, that we do. It is, an, it is an action that we share in. The Bible tells us, all the songs that we've been just singing tell us, that hope, hope is found in, in Bethlehem. That behind every longing, whether it be for healing or whether it be for a present or whether it be about a basketball game, that behind every longing, there is a deeper longing. There is a, a deeper sense of we're waiting for something, we're yearning for something, we're longing for something. And the Bible tells us that we can find that something. In fact, it's a someone in Bethlehem. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to two places today, Luke chapter 2 and Micah chapter 5. If you don't have a, a Bible or ushers can help you out with that, they're coming up and down the aisle uh, right now. Just raise your hand or holler at them. Luke chapter 2 tells us that Mary and Joseph find their way to Bethlehem and then Matthew, or sorry, Micah chapter 5 tell us why that is so a significant Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 1 Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 1 it says in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them. In the inn. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word. And this word, Lord, 
reveals who you are, reveals who your son is, and reveals what that means for us. And so, Father, I pray that as we open your word that we would hear your voice. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here today who does not know you personally, who has not found the hope that you tell us is in Bethlehem, Lord, I pray that you would open eyes, open hearts, transform lives for your glory. God, take us all there. Take us to the place where Mary and Joseph, where the Magi, where the shepherds, Lord, stood in awe and wonder that you gave the gift of gifts. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you read Luke's narration of how Jesus was born, it seems that the reason why Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem was because Caesar Augustus wanted them there. Uh, Caesar Augustus was originally named... Octavian. He was uh, Julius Caesar's nephew. And Julius Caesar actually adopted him and made him one of his sons, giving him all the rights and privileges and really the heir to his throne at Rome. Many of us know uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated. We all had to sort of fight our way through that Shakespearean play at some point in high school. And uh, Octavian Uh, made sure, together with a coalition of other uh, Roman politicians, made sure that Brutus and the others were brought to justice. But then shortly after that, Octavian's comrades turned on him, and there was a brutal civil war for multiple years all across the Roman Empire, and Octavian emerged victorious. He was renamed uh, Caesar Augustus. He no longer went by Octavian. He went by the name... Augustus, which means majestic one. And it says here in verse 1 of Luke 2 that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the majestic one. He says that all the world should be registered. He wanted to have a census. I guess censuses have come a long way. Um, I mean, now it sort of happens online or something gets delivered to your house. I remember when I was a kid, people used to come and knock on your door to... This was far more inconvenient. You had to get up and go back to the the land of your your lineage where your ancestors were were from. But notice, notice the description. All the world, Caesar Augustus, the majestic one, seemed to be in charge of the whole world. It seems that the reason why Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem was because Caesar Augustus wanted them there. Verse 2 puts this in its historical context. It says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Uh, That word first, it's the Greek word protos. Think about prototype. Uh, It's actually better translated. There's a footnote in my Bible that says, "This this was the census before, proto, before Quirinius was, was, was governor of Syria because that That particular census, the later one, resulted in a huge uh, revolt, which would have been on everyone's mind as the reader. So Luke puts it in historical context for us there. Verse 3 says, All went up to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David. 
Mary and Joseph were living up in the, in the north. They, they were living in Galilee, and Joseph, together with Mary, made the roughly 150 to 200 kilometer journey on foot to be registered. So just, just, I mean, it only took us a sentence to read that. It would have taken three days, 10 hours a day to walk that. Imagine you wanted to do your Boxing Day shopping down in Buffalo and you chose to go on foot. That would be roughly the same, the same distance. You know, walk, maybe, maybe somehow get to Oakville and uh, camp out and then over the Skyway Bridge and wave to my hometown of, of Hamilton and maybe make it to Stony Creek or St. Catharines or something like that. And then on the third day of walking, making your way to your ultimate destination. That's what Mary and Joseph did. They ended up in this place called Bethlehem. Bethlehem, not because Caesar Augustus wanted them there, but because God wanted them there. So I want to invite you to turn now to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah is in the crusty part of your Bible, relatively close to the New Testament, but not read very frequently. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. If you have no idea where Micah is, just check the table of contents. Chances are the person beside you is not going to be judging you. They don't know where it is either. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In this short little verse, we're going to see how God zeroes in on a place and he gives a promise. And that promise has a very important purpose. A place, a promise, and a purpose. And it's why that in this place, in this place, Bethlehem, where Mary and J Joseph traveled, where Jesus was born, this is the place where we can find hope. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. From this short little verse in this obscure passage in the Old Testament, we're going to see three reasons why we can find hope in Bethlehem. Here's the first one. God's promises shine brightest when our circumstances are darkest. God's promises shine brightest when our circumstances are darkest. We don't want to just take Micah 5, 2 and lift this one verse out of a seven-chapter book out of its context. We need to understand who is Micah and when was he writing? What was going on? We, 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 we can't simply understand what Micah 5, 2 means for us until we, mean, until we understand what it meant for the people who were reading Micah or listening to Micah for the first time. Micah was a prophet around the same time as Isaiah, about 700 B.C., 700 years before Caesar Augustus called for the census and Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem. He was writing during a, during a season of unprecedented affluence and wealth, but the culture and the society was just about heading into a moral and political and economic decline. 
It was a, Israel had once been a world power on the international scene, but now it, was, it had become a divided and weak and complacent and corrupt. Its, its political leaders were only more immoral than they were incompetent. The people were selfish and greedy, had no compassion for those who were in need. These were dark times. On top of that, the, the Assyrian Empire was blitzkrieging like a buzzsaw through the nations in the surrounding area. And the separatists to the north, that empire had already been flattened. And they were beginning to encircle the city of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, which is just outside of the capital of Judea. And it was only a matter of days before the Assyrians were going to be right at the city walls. Some, some believe that Bethlehem would have already been taken and it was just Jerusalem that was left. These were dark times. Look at the broader context. Look up at chapter 4 verse 10. It says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. Think about the the, the pain, I'm not going to describe, the, I'm, I'm, I've heard about this thing called mansplaining, so I'm just not going to try to go there. But women can understand the, the, the unfathomable pain of childbearing. That's the analogy, the, the, the dark times in which they are living in. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. Not only were they threatened by the Assyrians, but there was also this other rising world power, the Babylonians. Micah here, just like Isaiah, is predicting the exile to, uh, to Babylon. Then look at verse 11. It says, Now... Many nations are assembled against you. These are dark times. Many nations were assembled against the people of Israel. But look at verse 12. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. The people at the time of Micah would have seen the Assyrians coming, would have heard the, the prophecies, the predictions about the Babylonians coming, and just wondering, well, where is God in all of this? But God is always working, even when we can't see it. But we can see it most clearly. We can see it at its brightest when things are actually the darkest. The immediate context, look now at Micah chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Siege, the city is surrounded. The city is under siege. It says, With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So the king, the judge, is being publicly embarrassed. He is being struck in the face with a rod. These are the dark times in which they we're living. But God's promises shine brightest when our circumstances are darkest. Are you going through a dark time right now? The presence of conflict in your marriage, trying to brave through it at Christmas for the kids and for the in-laws. 
But there, there, there's dark times. You feel further away than ever before to the person you're supposed to feel closest to. Maybe it's the absence of someone this Christmas. Getting ready for Christmas and unpacking things and different people's stockings. And then there's one stocking that last year you laid out for someone. But you laid them in the ground this year. Are you going through, through a, a dark season right now? Are you thinking about the gifts that you bought and the, the bills on, that are, will be coming in January and there is, a, there is a, a financial crisis just around the corner? It's in these dark times that God's promises shine the brightest. It was at this moment and among the people of God where God chose to lay out this magnificent promise in the darkest time. These were dark times for Mary and Joseph. I mean, think about it. In the narration that was read at the beginning of the service from Matthew 2, I mean, if it entered into Joseph's mind when he found out that Mary was pregnant, that he should probably divorce her because of some sort of immoral action, if that's what was on Joseph's mind, chances are everyone else in Galilee was thinking the same thing. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm pretty sure Gabriel didn't go to each and every home and explain the situation. Scholars can only speculate. Why did pregnant Mary go with Joseph for the census? She didn't have to. But one of the theories is they just wanted to get out of all of the shame and the judgment that they did. This would have been a dark time for them. And then the, the, the whole census itself, I mean, Mary and Joseph were not under the potential threat of, of the Assyrians or the, or, or the Babylonians. They weren't under the threat of defeat. They had already experienced defeat. The fact that Caesar Augustus in Rome could just make a decree and then everyone has to get up and, and travel 200 kilometers was just a sign that the nation was not what it was supposed to be. Yeah, the Assyrians came, and then after them, the Babylonians, and then after them, the Persians allowed them to go home from, from exile, and it seemed like things were hopeful at that point, but then it came Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and then the Egyptians, and then the Syrians, and now the Romans. Just this revolving door of rulers, a carousel of kings, telling them what to do. This was a dark time, even when Mary and Joseph were about to welcome in the light of the world. It's at this time where God gives this promise, but to you, I mean, Micah 5 2, but to you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, too little. Make note of this, secondly, God uses the seemingly insignificant to do the exceedingly magnificent. 
It is just the way of God. It's just how he works. He takes something that is seemingly insignificant and then does something exceedingly magnificent. I mean, Luke, the, the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, it begins with Caesar Augustus in Rome. But, but the spotlight then quickly shifts from, from Caesar Augustus over to this peasant carpenter and his pregnant fiance traveling from one podunk, podunk town to another. Bethlehem. A seemingly insignificant town. There's, there's instances in the Old Testament where all the cities in Judea are being listed and Bethlehem just gets skipped. Like it doesn't, it doesn't count. People here from Orangeville, you know what I mean, right? <laughs> we love Orangeville. But God uses the seemingly insignificant to do the exceedingly magnificent the first time Bethlehem is mentioned in the Bible, it's, it's in the context of a birth and a burial. Jesus was born to be buried, wasn't he? Mary and Joseph welcomed him into, uh, into the world. And then another uh, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Mary, put him into the ground, birth and burial. The first time Bethlehem is mentioned... Um, Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, is pregnant and she goes into labor on their way to Bethlehem in Genesis 35. Benjamin is born, but Rachel dies. And even at the end of Genesis, at the end of Jacob's life, where he has so much to be thankful for and how God had orchestrated things to be reunited with Joseph and here are all of his children all together, he stops while he's blessing all of his children to remember the sorrow that he experienced in Bethlehem. Later on, when the people of God in the time of Judges, the Bible's boy meets girl hallmark romance is set in Bethlehem, a poor immigrant named Ruth falls in love with a businessman named Boaz, and the setting for that is Bethlehem. Their son Obed and then their grandson Jesse has a Another great-grandson named David, who is the littlest child in the littlest town of the littlest clan, Bethlehem. This insignificant place was the place where Israel's greatest earthly king was born. And this great king, this exceedingly magnificent king, was going to be born in this seemingly insignificant town. You see, you might have come here today thinking that you're quite significant. I just want to say that's not going to go well for you. You might have come here today being like, God must be really glad I came to church. You know, a lot of people aren't too into religion today. I'm just putting in some time, just letting them know that I'm here. I'm a good person. I've been successful in my job. I'm moral. I, I don't lie. I tell the truth. I, I, I pay my taxes unless I get a really good deal if, I, if, I'm, if someone says I can pay cash. I, um, I'm God must be really glad that I'm here today. Listen, God chooses places like Bethlehem. God doesn't choose people that are significant in and of themselves because of their success or because of their education or because of their wealth or because of their looks. God chooses places like Bethlehem. God chooses people 
People who are humble. People who know that they need a savior. People who are weighed down with the worries and cares of this world. People who are longing for something more. Not smug and satisfied with all they've already accomplished. John Piper sums it up uh, in this way. He says, God chose a stable so no innkeeper could boast. He chose the comfort of my inn. God chose a manger so no woodworker could boast. He chose the craftsmanship of my bed. He chose Bethlehem so no one could boast. The greatness of our city constrained the divine choice. And he chose you and me freely and unconditionally to stop the mouth of all human boasting. The deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. God does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or grandeur or distinction. When he chooses, he chooses freely in order to magnify the glory of his own mercy, not the glory of our distinctions. So let us say with the angels, glory to God in the highest, not glory to us. Every other religion says glory to us. Look what we do. Look what we achieve. Look what we accomplish. Look how good we are. Look how moral we are. Christianity says, knock all that off. None of that's even true. None of that's even humanly possible. What you need is not to, 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 to preach your resume. What you need is to seek repentance. What you need is not to magnify yourself. What you need is to receive mercy from God. He uses the seemingly insignificant to do the exceedingly magnificent. God, in his infinite wisdom and glory and power and mercy and grace, takes sinners who know they are sinners and makes them into saints. Saint is not just some um, label that we put on a, 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 a particularly religious or fruitful person in ministry. No, we, the Bible says we are all called saints. None of us deserve that. Bethlehem was, wasn't any, any more moral or any more special than any uh, other city, but God chose it in its insignificance. Not for anything in and of the city itself. God chooses to save sinners, not because of any merit in and of the sinner, but to magnify and glorify his mercy and grace. So God promise, God's promises shine brightest when our circumstances are darkest. God uses the seemingly insignificant to do the exceedingly magnificent. And then lastly, God has come to dwell with us in humility so that we can dwell with him in glory. After describing the place and the promise made to this particular place, then is here comes uh, the purpose. It says at the end of verse 2, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, the readers at Micah's time 
would have made a connection with the city of Bethlehem. They would have known the story of David. I mean, even their king at the time, as, as, even though he was failing, they would have known he was a descendant of David. They, th- that king had a lineage from of old, from of ancient of days. And so on its base level, the readers of Micah's prophecy, the, the, those who were listening to him preach, would have just thought, okay, just another, another person out of the lineage of David. But here's the thing, that phrase coming forth, it says, from you shall come forth. That can mean origins. That can be referring to ancestry. But it can also mean activity. And that phrase, uh, ancient days or from of old, that can be referring to chronological human history. But it can also refer to, it's used a number of times in the Old Testament to describe God existing in eternity past. And so Micah 5.2 tells us that there will be a human king who will be a descendant of David whose origin goes all the way back to Bethlehem and David. But that earthly king, Micah 5.2, can also be read that that earthly king will also be the one whose activities go back beyond the days of David, go all the way to eternity past. Micah 5.2, in a very latent way, in a way that we have the privilege of being able to read backwards into the story as the people were looking forwards as they were reading it, is pointing to the fact that this king that was going to be born in Bethlehem was not just going to merely be a human king. He was also going to be God himself coming to this earth. And that just blows our mind as we think about the place where he chose to be Born, the one whose ancestry is from of old, the one whose activities go back to eternity, the one who created the world, the one who wrestled with Jacob, the captain of the Lord's army that met Joshua. This ruler of the universe chose to come to Bethlehem. What Micah 5.2 is telling us is that an eternal being has chosen to step into time. And he didn't arrive in Rome. He arrived in Bethlehem. He didn't come to a house. He came to a stable. He wasn't laid in a cradle or a bed. He was laid in a manger. R.G. Lee describes it in this way. He says, in Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a, in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature woman. But his descent was the dawning of mercy because we cannot ascend to him. He descends to us. God has come to dwell with us in humility so that we can dwell with him in glory. You see, the Christmas story begins with Caesar Augustus, the supposed ruler of the world, telling the world to go. All the while, while this king is telling the world to go, the true king is not telling the world to go. The true king is coming. That Caesar Augustus 
gave this census so that he could do a better job of collecting taxes. The the ruler of the world at that time in Rome was a king who wanted to take. But the king who was born in Bethlehem from ancient of days, he was not a king who came to take. He was a king who came to give. Isaiah prophesied that, that, that to us a child is born. To us a son is given. He was given. He is a gift. He is not a king who takes and taxes his people. He is a king who gives and saves his people. He came to give. He was treated the way that we deserve to be treated. So that by his grace, we could go to the place where he came He was treated as a sinner so that we could be treated as a son and as a daughter. He came to the the stable and ultimately came to the cross so that we could go to heaven. You see, here's how we can put all of these things together. That even when our circumstances are dark, God's promises shine the brightest. If you are in a dark place in this season, you need to know that God has made a promise to you. That he has sent his son to suffer and to die on the cross for your sin. And that he chooses to take that which is seemingly insignificant and make it into something magnificent. That we can receive forgiveness for the wrong things that we've said and done and thought. That we can receive mercy and grace when we trust in Jesus Christ. And that we have this promise And we have this source of hope that even when we experience difficulty and hardship and darkness in this world, we know that there is a life beyond this life. And we therefore have hope. The Puritan Christians who left England and really were some of the first to come to uh, this continent didn't celebrate Christmas. But they wrote some pretty magnificent Christmas prayers. And this is a quotation from uh, one of those prayers. It says, herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise me above. Was born like me that I might become like him. Herein is love. When I cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise me to himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. Herein is wisdom. When I was undone and with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost. As a man to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for me. This is where we can find hope. If you are in need of hope today, don't leave this place today without coming to Bethlehem, without coming and bowing your knees before him who came to give his life for you, to pay the penalty for your sin, 
You were invited here by someone who loves you. You're surrounded by people that don't know you, but they love you too. And so if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, to worship him about this hope, make sure that you capitalize on that opportunity uh, and have that conversation tonight. Let me pray for us as we continue to worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a king who takes, but a king who gives. We thank you that you are not a king who orders his people to go, but that you have in fact come to your people. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son that was born in Bethlehem. God, I pray, Lord, that as we journey along, Lord, in the weariness of this world, Lord, that we would experience that thrill of hope that you have sent your son to suffer and die for us, that you have given the gift of forgiveness to those who trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we close out this service. I pray that as we gather together as family and as friends over the next several days, Lord, I pray that we would be filled with a sense of awe and wonder and worship, Lord, that you would love us, that you would send your son to save us. In Jesus' name we pray.